Guys, great to see you this morning. Thanks, thanks for being here on this uh, mid-September hot um, Lord's Day morning. Grateful to be back with you. I was last week um, over at Meredith's, not eating a pastry, but teaching our, our youth. As many of you know, our, our, our youth meet over at, um, at Meredith's. Uh, during this hour, and it's been um, it's been a joy to to be between both here and there, um, covering some of the same content, uh, looking at some of the same things that we've been uh, exploring together over the last several weeks in this this series that we've entitled "Upon This Rock: Foundations for Life Together." Foundations for Life Together, and we're actually into week four. How many of you have been here for all four of them so far? No shame in this question. Um, yeah, okay, all right. And how many of you are here for the first time? Anybody here for the, for the first time? Yes, okay, good, a few of you. Um, Charlie, can you help me for a second? Yes, sir. Uh, thank you. I know you weren't expecting that. Yeah, <laughs> so see if you could sing and dance for me. I can do that. Yeah, okay. All right, so that's a handout for this morning. Um, and as we're trying to each week as we gather together, one of the things we want you to have something to take home um, because sometimes exploring this subject together requires actually seeing something on, on page. And I think today that's, that's specifically uh, true. Um, Last week, as this handout makes around, let me just do just a little bit of re review with you, especially for those of you maybe with us for the first time. We spent our first couple of weeks in this, in this series talking about two key doctrines, the doctrine of justification and the doctrine of sanctification. And we talked about those two doctrines as foundational to the Christian life um, as ways in which we understand our identity as people in Christ. Justification is literally the act of being declared righteous in the sight of God. It's an act that God himself does on our behalf based upon what Jesus has done for us. So it's, it's an act of God. It's not something we do. It's not something we grow into. It's something that God does. And God does it not based upon us, but based upon Christ, on what Christ has done for us. Um, which is why we said that in the doctrine of justification, there's a strong place for a Christian to stand in terms of how him or her understand their relationship with Christ. Like, so sometimes you may ask yourself this question, you know, how am I doing with the Lord? You know, what's my relationship with the Lord, Right. We'll ask those questions like as we do with a spouse or with a child. You know, how is my relationship? We might say, well, it's good or it's bad or it's somewhere in between. And we might give some descriptors to that. We do that because relationships are dynamic, right? They, they, they change. They don't stay the same. They're organic, kind of like plants. Um, they're either growing or they're dying. But they're, they're doing something <laughs> at all times. Justification is not like that. It's really important to get that. So when I ask you, how is your relationship with God based upon the doctrine of justification, you know what your answer should always be as a Christian? Amazing. Why? Because that standing has nothing to do with how well you're doing with God at any given point. It has to do with what he has done for you that doesn't change. Okay? That's the foundation of Christian identity. 
That's why it's hopeful. Okay, I, um, illustration for instance. You know, my, my, so my wife is in Gatlinburg this morning. We had a, a soccer tournament over the weekend, so they're worshiping somewhere uh, there. And, and uh, yeah, and we've just had a long couple of weeks. We, we had this wonderful car ride over together. You, you know you're busy when you just can't wait to be in your car with your wife for a couple hours. It's like, that sounds amazing. Like, we'll get to talk and like, it'll be renewing, right, in that relationship. And if you would have asked me before the car ride, how's your relationship with Christy? It's okay. That's what I would have said. It's okay. There's nothing wrong. Like, there's no, just feel that distance, you know, that distance that's there from lack of tending of the relationship for the last several weeks. And, and so I would have said, it's okay. But I could have said, how's your relationship with Christy? I could have just said, it's amazing. She's my wife. She's my wife. That didn't change whether we're having a good day or a bad day. She's given her life to me. See how that's different? That's justification, all right? That's the status of the relationship. Now, the relationship with my wife will change if she or I should die, God forbid, right? Marriage doesn't carry over in the same way into the new heavens and the new earth, the scripture teaches us. So it's not an eternal foundation. But it is to say, by renewing your mind in the status of the relationship, it brings a solidity, a foundation to your walk with the Lord. And that's what justification is. Now, there's the other side is, which is like, you know, how are you and Christy doing? We're doing okay, you know. We're doing a lot better after that cart ride, actually. Just we're able to just have some sweet time, right, together. So I'd say we're doing really well, you know. We cleared the air on a lot of great things, and I'm glad for that. Um, that has more to do with sanctification. That's that other term. Sanctification is not an act of God's free grace. It's a process whereby we grow in our relationship with the Lord. We become increasingly holy or righteous. That's the day-to-day. That's the Monday morning. That's the, the grit and the grind, as it were of, of um, day in and day out walk. And that's dynamic and it's up and down and at times it, it's sweet and at times it's distant and sanctification is a process whereby we're growing into the status that we already have received in Christ, okay? So we spent two weeks kind of talking in and around those things. Then last week we talked about how that gospel, the gospel truths of justification and sanctification actually build community, they help build community. They help bring strength to a group of people who understand their identity is in Christ and not in one another or um, not in themselves, uh, not in their performances, um, not in their failures, um, but it's in Christ. And that's the identity that we share together. And it has a foundation to build community. And then there's also this provocation, this, this strength of growth and accountability that comes. And we actually looked at our, our membership vows uh, together uh, last week. And you'll actually see those on the front of your, your outline, committing to gospel life, our membership vows. What are we saying um, when we become a member of this uh, local body. And, we, and, you know, I wasn't here. Tony was with you last week. But I will say in, in our youth Sunday school class, I said, with regards to, to membership, it, and I think this deserves clarification as we kind of lay foundations to get started today. It's easy to hear that word member and to immediately think, you know, Sam's Club or Costco or Country Club. Um, it's easy to think, if I pay my dues, 
get to be a part of this community kind of, kind of feel. That's, that's not what we mean at all when we use the language of memory. That's why it regularly needs to be um, um, described and defined and delineated in a variety of ways. But when the scripture uses the language of member to describe uh, a person, he says we are members of the body of Christ. It's talking about a part of the body. It's like the way my hand is connected to my arm. Okay, and my arm is connected to my shoulder. Okay, that's a little, I would go so far as to say that's a little more vital than Costco membership, which I can like come and go or be a part of or not be a part of. What the scripture is actually saying when we are the body of Christ, it's saying we don't live apart from being connected to one another. So if you, if you, can, if you can understand that in terms of it, the metaphor of the body of Christ, it's saying, this, you know, this hand looks um, fairly normal connected to my arm. But if you were to find this hand lying around on the floor this morning, it would be scary. It'd be nightmarish to you. And it would be dead. That's what the metaphor means. Metaphor is getting to the lifeblood of one another is actually deeply connected. As we're connected to the head, that's, what, that's the language of Paul in 1 Corinthians, we're connected to the head, which is Christ. We're all members of the body. Different members, we're not all the same. We don't have the same function. We don't have the same abilities. But we're all connected. And our life, if I can put it this way, our life is ultimately and in every way connected to Christ but it's also bound up with one another. Meaning that you can never be a true Christian in the biblical sense of the term on your own. It's impossible, spiritually speaking. Now, that probably raises some questions about you know, your uncle who's not a part of the church, or, or your family member, right? I, I get that, and those are really important practical questions I'd be more than willing to address and talk with you on. But I'm really just talking about the Bible's teaching. The Bible knows nothing of someone who's not connected to the body of Christ because there's no life in Christ apart from the connection to the body of Christ. There's, just, there's no picture of that in the Scriptures. So at the very least we can say is it is non-biblical Meaning like the Bible doesn't even give you an option. Like here's one track, be a part of the body of Christ. Here's another track, not be a part of the body of Christ. It just doesn't give you that option. And so the best we can say is that the Bible does not conceive of a Christian who's disconnected from the body of Christ. Unmembered. Literally dismembered. Is a better way to understand it. Um. So we said this relationship with Christ, this relationship to one another, leads us into this abiding and committed relationship. It's why we take vows. It's why we're committed uh, to one another. And recognizing how important our growth is in Christ in relationship with one another. Okay? So that was last week together. What we really want to talk about today is um, what I've got down there at the middle of the first page, God's vision for the church in Acts 2, uh, 42 to 47. Uh, some of you um, might know or remember, uh, those of you who are here a long, long time ago, um, we did a series on Acts 2, 42 to 47, um, near the beginning of Cornerstone, where we unpacked the distinctiveness of the early church what its life looked like, what its commitments looked like, what the fruits of relationship with Christ and one another looked like. How do we have um, 
tangible evidence for how we know that a church is healthy, for instance. Um, and I actually said in that series is, I love Cornerstone Presbyterian Church. I'm so glad to be a part of it. But Acts 2, 42 to 47 is the church I want to be a part of. That's the vision for the church that I want to be a part of. That's the vision for the church that we want to be connected to. And to the degree that we're connected in the way that's displayed in Acts 2, 42 to 47, I think it gives us a vision for what a real, healthy, vibrant church should look like. What would be some of its commitments and evidences and natures of its community um, that we could look at? And so we're going to take a few minutes to look at that passage together, break down just a handful of things. We're not going to do a full exposition of the text this morning. And then if you'll, you'll look over on the back, you'll see under point four, the cornerstone way. This is a vision document that we use as a means by which to say, here's our attempt at Cornerstone to put into vision and practice Acts 2, 42 to 47. This is our, our hope, our vision um, for what we would love to see happen within our body. And these are the descriptions um, that, we, that we give. And so we'll, we'll get there and hopefully spend the lion's share of our time um, right there in that, in that section. Now, that was the longest introduction in the history of the world. But I am now going to pray and we will... <laughs> We will jump in. So in the early service this morning, I totally forgot the Heidelberg Catechism. How many of you have noticed this? I'm going to try to stay on task, okay? I'm trying to stay on task. I'm trying to... Let's pray. Let's pray again. Father in heaven, I obviously need your help uh, as we are looking at this text of Scripture together and also thinking about the worship and uh, the ministry that you have given to the church. Uh, Lord, we want to be the church that you have called us and made us to be. And we want to be reflective of the priorities and the commitments of the New Testament church. And we want to trust you to bring about the fruitfulness and uh, faithfulness that's necessary for that church to bear good witness for you in the world. So hear me in this prayer, hear us collectively as a body asking you to come and to renew our commitment to your church and to give us a love for what is plan A and there is no plan B and how you will advance your kingdom in the world in and through the ecclesia, the called out ones, the church. Lord, come and meet us right now as we explore this passage and as we consider the vision of this local church. Let everything that would be faithful in this time be memorable and transformative and to be used according to your will and for your glory. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, let's look together at Acts 2, 42 to 47. You could turn there in your Bibles or you could look on uh, in the handout. Uh, just a reminder of sort of the context here for this uh, passage. This uh, Peter has just preached um, there in Jerusalem at um, Pentecost. It is uh, Pentecost, the, the word penta, as you can see, there's 50. We're 50 days at this point um, after um, the, the resurrection. Um, and uh, we're going into the, uh, the, the inauguration of, of the church uh, age. Um, and the falling of the Holy Spirit has just happened in Acts chapter 2. Many signs and wonders um, from the apostles uh, in that passage. And then there's this, what I would call a cameo portrait. <laughs> just a little 
hey, let's glimpse into what kind of body life, what kind of community formed in and around um, this work of God. Uh, and I think you have this very ordinary, extraordinary vision for the local church that's given to us here in Acts 2, 42 to 47. Let me read the whole of the text and then we'll jump into three things together. Uh, verse 42, and they, that is those who were saved and converted in the previous passage, the, um, the 3,000 that were, that were converted there in Jerusalem, they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching, to the fellowship, to the breaking of the bread, and the prayers. And awe came upon every soul. Many wonders and signs were being done through the apostles. All who believed were together and had all things in common. They were selling their possessions and belongings and distributing the proceeds to all as any had need. And day by day, attending the temple together and breaking bread in their homes, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. And the Lord added to their number, day by day, those who were being saved." Beautiful picture, isn't it? Acts 2, 42 to 47 of what this early nascent uh, church looked like in Jerusalem following the fall of the Holy Spirit and the preaching of Peter at Pentecost. Now I want to start simply by looking at the practices, what we see um, the early church devoting themselves to. What, what were their commitments as they came out of this fresh anointing of the Holy Spirit, the Spirit now dwelling within them, what did they give their lives to? And then we'll look at some of the rhythms that we see developed. And I've articulated four things that I see them being devoted to. And historically, um, the church has seen um, the Acts 2.42 as a picture of what the true devotion of the local church should be. Notice it is first the apostles' teaching, or what I've described here as the Word. They devoted themselves to the Word, or to the apostles' teaching. Um, notice then also to the breaking of bread. That is a euphemism that is used throughout the book of Acts to describe the Lord's Supper, but also to describe the context of a fellowship meal. It's likely the case, I won't get into all of the historiography behind it, but it's very likely the case that they practiced the Lord's Supper quite differently than we did, than we do. And it was probably in the context of a larger meal from which the Lord's Supper was, was celebrated. And so the breaking of the bread used both euphemistically for hospitality, but then also used for the Lord's Supper is in view um, here in Acts 2.42. And then notice, apostles teaching, the fellowship, the fellowship, um, the community. Um, it's actually a pretty, um, it, it's a pretty strong word. It, it's, it's more than coffee and donuts, for instance. Um, the fellowship is actually displayed or unpacked or defined later in the text when it says they had all things in common. So that word common, of course, is the root word for the word community. And to be in community is to have a common unity. And a community holds things in common together. Okay, what sort of mine is yours and what's yours in mine? Now, don't, don't do a socialistic, communistic thing, right? 
okay, in your mind. I'm not talking about socio-economic or governmental systems here. I'm talking about something spirit-wrought, brought by the Lord, flowing out of the hearts and the lives of God's people, okay? That's, that's what's happening in, in the context of Acts 2, 42 to 47. So this fellowship is a, is a significant um, uh, in, in connectedness. Now, if you can hear in that, having all things in common, um, sharing goods and services uh, with, with one another, hopefully you hear body. Body. Okay? The life of one is connected to the life of the, of the other. And in fact, the health of one part of the body affects the whole of the health of the whole of the body. And in the same way that our bodies, when it's injured in one area, the whole of the body focuses on healing or caring for that body. Very similarly, that metaphor richly is in, is in view um, underneath what it is we're seeing here in the text. So the word, the sacraments, the prayer, uh, the breaking of the bread, and notice the prayers. Uh, the prayers. What, what theologians have seen in this is a liturgical or elemental structure for the nature of worship. Now, there's a lot of places we could turn in the New Testament to describe that, but if you'll notice, that's kind of what church looks like. It's kind of what a church service looks like. It includes these components. If you'll look at the title of our, of our um, lesson today, a parish church being an ordinary means of grace community, that language of ordinary means of grace. Okay, if you, you hear that, if you've been around this very long, you've heard the language of ordinary means of grace. What are we talking about? Word, sacrament, prayers, fellowship, and Calvin would include discipleship in that, or discipline as it's referred to, the exercise of authority within, within the church. The elders, deacons, the need for structure uh, in the midst of that. And we see that. I mean, the apostles, that's what we see in the unfolding of uh, we have Peter and the apostles operating as church authority, and that's unique in biblical history. Um, so so there, here we have these four exercise or practices that are a part of uh, the local church. Now notice on the back the experience of the church community. Now as they devote themselves to these four things, the Spirit of God is with them. Notice some things that happened. Um, I'm describing it as the fear of the Lord or living in the presence of the Lord is what begins to happen as a reality among God's people. Notice the way it's described. And awe came upon every soul. Awe came upon every soul. This is the astonishment and the wonder of who God is and what he has done for us in Christ, a shot-throughness of the, of the realities of the gospel and the power of the gospel arresting and affecting and captivating our hearts and souls. Awe came upon every soul. Surely the Lord is in this place. That, that sense of God being with his people as they devoted themselves uh, to these means of grace. Um, that, of course, is short for um, the... 21st century abused word, awesome. Right? You know, everything is awesome, you know. The other day, I was, one of my kids was eating some kind of candy. And I said, how is it? Awesome. No, it's not. Yeah, no. And I did not correct them. Don't worry, I didn't. Dad didn't make that mistake, but... But in it, awesome, in a biblical term, it means, I mean, it has this this sense of trembling that's a, that's a part of it. Like, God is with us. 
a, a holy hush and a sense of him being the most prominent presence in the room. Um, that's the strength of that is what's here. And so actually the Old Testament word most commonly used for the sense of awe is the fear of the Lord. Another, another concept that I think that we have really lost going in, into the, to, to the New Testament, um, not in the Bible, but, but in terms of New Testament expression in our own day and time. There's a cavalierness, there's a casualness, um, there's a flippancy often with regards to, to meeting with God and meeting with his people. That's not the picture that we get here in the New Testament. It's, it's an awe-inspiring, um, reverent holiness, um, a sense of his presence being with us. Um, and so our recognition of that reality is taking place. And then notice, uh, secondly, sacrificial living, giving away our lives to one another. This was, this was the experience that began to happen naturally. And so I've put it under the context of experience because um, there's no one at this point saying, you need to be selling your goods. There's not... There's not, no, no one is commanding these things to happen. Now that, in case you're wondering, like, well, maybe we shouldn't command those things. No, the rest of the New Testament commands them very regularly. You know, the Apostle Paul will, you know, you need to give to one another. I love it in, in, you know, in 2 Corinthians where he's talking about giving. And as he speaks about giving, he says, now listen, I don't want to command you. <laughs> but I will. <laughs> you know, right? I'd, I'd rather you give cheerfully out of recognizing that you and your poverty have become rich in Christ. Give from there. Right? See, do you see what he did? He brought awe into the experience of giving. He brought the sense of God's presence and the sense of the truth of God in the gospel into relationship with the discipline of giving. So it didn't become this shaming tactic to build another building. I'm putting that on church side of things. That's how we tend to do it, right? Um, he preached the gospel. And he says, in light of the gospel and the generosity of God, give. All right? Now, that's, I think, awe and sacrificial giving coming together. You remember that moment 10 years ago where you gave from the heart? <laughs> right? no, I'm just kidding. Um, you remember those moments, right, where you sacrificially opened up your wallet or your purse or you, you bought something and you gave it just out of the sheer delight of doing so. And you got the experience of being able to do that. And it really wasn't about you. Like it wasn't about you ingratiating or indebting yourself to someone else. Or, and you know that because it's not been something where you thought, they've really not been as grateful as I thought they would be for the thing. that You know, like you've not, you're not having that internal dialogue going on. You've really given in a freely and cheerful way. Um, I do, I'm sad to say I think that's rare often in our Christian experience in lives and we need to help and assist each other in stirring us up in the gospel so that we do give from that place more, more faithfully and continually uh, in our lives. Um, that sacrificial giving is flowing out of the sense of these things coming, coming together. And then notice then thirdly the fruit of the community. The fruit of the community. Um, he, at the very end, it says, And the Lord added to their number day by day those who were being saved. And then right before that, it says, And day by day, two times it, it uses that phrase, Attending the temple together and breaking breads, they received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God and having favor with all the people. I've called this increased grace and increased growth. 
These are the, this is the fruitfulness that comes out of faithfulness uh, when God rewards uh, that work with his spirit and he, he does his work within our midst. Increased grace and, and increased growth. Now, if you'll notice, I mean, this, man, I'm just, you know, let's just, it's important for us to name these things. And again, these are no, no, no shame in this. Please don't hear it this way because this is convicting as much to me as I hope it will be to you. Notice it didn't say they came to church faithfully on Sunday. And that was a sign that God was doing a great work in their life. They made the commitment to also go to a home fellowship group once a week. I mean, these are just the benchmarks that we tend to look to. It says day by day. They live together. They attended the temple, sold their goods, met each other's needs, received their food with glad and generous hearts, praising God. The Lord added to their numbers day by day. That, I'm just, that's what the text says. I'm not making anything up. Just, what I say, I want to be a part of that church. I, I'm in that. I, mean, I, know I want this church, right? And I hope you want this church to be increasingly reflective of that church, of the work where the Spirit of God is is at work powerfully in transforming the body of Christ. All right, so the practices of the church community, the experience of the church community, the fruit of the church community, this vision became something that we pondered early on in the life of Cornerstone and began to say, okay, Lord, from this vision and from other passages, this was a centering text, but many other passages reflected on the work of the church. And we... we, we we set forward this cornerstone way, this, this vision statement and these character qualities of what we'd say we really believe um, this is who the Lord is calling us to be. This is like every vision statement. This is important to realize, and this is in the doctrine of justification and sanctification, if you can see it. Vision statements are, are who we are, but they're also who we want to be. They're both of those things. So they're both identifying and they're also aspirational, who we, who we want to be, who we, we want to grow into be. Now, if you can see that, that's the way the Christian life is oriented. Who you are, justification. Who you want to be, glorification. And in between, we're sanctifying, right? So guess what? What's ha happening individually in your lives is happening corporately within our body. Okay? It's happening corporately within our body. We want to grow more and more into the likeness of, of this vision. And so as we pondered that, we wanted to summarize as best as we possibly could what we believed was the entirety of the call of the church um, in, and try to do it in a, in a fairly simple sentence. And, and so if you'll look at the top, at the Cornerstone Way point four on your handout, you'll see this vision statement. Here is what Cornerstone hopes to, to, to be and to do and to grow into uh, as a congregation, that we would be glorifying God in the gospel together as disciples who make disciples. That's really what we want to do. We want to be glorifying God in the gospel together as disciples who make disciples. Now, I would, I just, I'd love for you to know that. I'd love for you to know that. I mean, one thing that you could take away from this class would be to say, I'm going to learn that one sentence. I'm going to learn, because I think if you learn that one sentence, you've actually learned in nugget form what the whole of the church is about. All right? Glorifying God in the gospel together as disciples who make disciples. Pretty, pretty straightforward. Um, in that statement, you see underneath 
a purpose, a place, and a path. Okay, so that is what it is we're here for, where it is we are, and where it is we're going. All right, those, those, are, the, those are the three things we see, and you see the four elements of, of, the, of the ministry of the church. Worship, community, discipleship, and mission. Right? Those four things are displayed. And if you can see the way I've broken it out under our purpose, notice the worship, the italicized words beside it, glorifying God in the gospel, is a picture of worship. It's really what we're striving to do every week when we gather in our variety of gatherings is to glorify God in the gospel. Okay? Now, if you'll look down to our place under community, notice the italicized word is together. We don't want to just do that alone. We want to do that together. We want to do that in relationship with each other. And we don't just want to stand around and look at each other. We have a place to go. There's a path that we walk. Discipleship, glorifying God together as disciples. That's your italicized word. And then glorifying God in the gospel together as disciples who make disciples. Mission. Okay? So the entirety of our church mission is right there summarized in those individual words and phrases within that, that context. Okay? So if you to learn it, you would have all of it right there together, all right? Now, what I want to do is unpack each of these elements just a little bit because I think you see all of those in this Acts 2, 42 to 47, don't you? Um, you see worship, you see community, fellowship, you see, you see um, discipleship as they're walking together, the day by day. Um, you see mission that goes adding to their number. They're bearing witness for Christ. You see all of these elements uh, on display. Um, what do these look like what are our commitments within these things? Because not every worship service in the world looks the same. Not all of its distinctiveness looks the same. Why do we do what we do? What are we aiming for when we're in the midst of worship or community or discipleship or mission? So these five descriptors under worship are intended to give you a flavor for why we, what it is we're committed to when we gather for worship. What it is we're, we're after? What, our, what we believe the Bible calls us to in the midst of worship. And the first of these things, notice, is that we believe we're to be gospel-centered. We believe we are to be gospel-centered. And I put the word evangelical out beside it. Don't let that make you nervous. I'm not referencing any political organization in North America or some religious right movement. I don't mean it in those ways, no matter where your sensibilities are on that. That's just not what's in view. Just to remind you, the word evangelical or evangel is just the word for gospel in the New Testament. That's all, all it means. It's where, of course, we get the word evangelism. Now, sadly, you know, evangelism has been tied up simply to mission, but evangelism in its, in its purest sense of the word is what we're doing all the time when we're just confirming the promises and goodness of God in Christ to each other. We're good newsing each other. That's what, that's what we're doing. Now, we've associated that with one type of activity, you know, whether it's tracks or door to door or whatever it is your model or method would be. But that's, that's not what's in view in the New Testament. Evangelical is a, is a word that simply means good news. And so when we come into worship every week together, we want the centrality of our worship service to be around the good news of the gospel, of Christ and him crucified. When Paul is, is preaching and teaching in the church at Corinth, he says, I made it my mission among you to know nothing except Christ and him crucified. That's what he says, to know nothing among you. Now, I think what's really important when you hear that 
is not to think that, okay, every time Paul preached then, he must have gave a, an altar call or something like that. Or he must have, you know, must have always had unbelievers in, in view in terms of them being converted. Now, I, it's very clear Paul had that in view, all right? But wasn't the only thing he had in view. When we talk about gospel-centered or we talk about knowing Christ and Him crucified, he means as clearly, well, let me illustrate this way, in the letter of 1 Corinthians where he says that, does he talk about other things other than the gospel? Yeah. Like he talks about like believers who sue each other. And uh, he talks about sexual ethics. He talks about abuses that are going on in the Lord's table. We could go on and on about the various topics. Then what does he mean when he says, I only wanted to know among you Christ who created Because it seems like he wants to know a bunch of things. I believe it's pretty clear that what Paul is doing is that anytime he's addressing any topic, he's bringing that topic in relationship to the gospel. He's bringing the gospel into relationship with that topic. Every single time that he's preaching and teaching. I just referenced the, the, the giving one, for instance, right? The cheerful giving. That's also there. He says, I don't want to command you. That's not, that's not what we're after. We're not just after the bottom line. He says, I'm after the gospel in your heart and in your life. I'm not just after you not suing each other as believers. Now, don't sue each other. But not just to not sue each other. Think of what is you have in Christ. Think of the one who has adjudicated you and has declared you not guilty legally. How does that make a difference in the way you relate to other people's offenses? Well, that's a changer. All right? So when Paul says, I came among you to only know Christ and crucified, he didn't mean that he just stood up every day and just, you know, in three minutes gave the gospel and sat down. It means that he unpacked its implications in, in the life of the congregation so that, so that they understood the relationship between the gospel and those things and how that changed everything. That's what we strive to do, okay? Gospel-centered uh, in our worship services uh, together. Secondly, it's biblically informed. That is, it's scriptural. It's scriptural. Um, we believe God's word should be uh, the central foundation for the worship service. And that's why in just about every single element of this local congregation, you're going to see a reference. You're going to see the Bible has informed it uh, in some way, shape, or form. And uh, we believe that you have lots of words in your life. Uh, from the world out there and from your head inside <laughs> that you're listening to day in and day out, the hope is that the truth of the Word of God would be saturated in the midst of the service and would hopefully speak louder to you than all of those other voices. And to do that, we'd love for the whole of the service to be biblically informed, that you're hearing the Word not just in preaching, but you're hearing the Word through every element of the service. And, and isn't this true? I, I, it, it, Sometimes it's the confession, and sometimes it's the Lord's Supper, and sometimes it's that new hymn, and sometimes it's the benediction, and you go, oh, and awe hits you. Sometimes it's in the sermon, not usually, but sometimes on that oft occasion where that happens. But you know what I mean? The whole of the service is, in some sense, a preachment. The whole thing is, is working towards um, communicating to you the whole drama of the gospel. Okay? 
biblically informed, historically rooted. Um, you, you know, you'll see in our services that we'll use old hymns and old readings and confessions, and we'll use new hymns and new readings. Um, there, there is a there's a need for us to be not just simply a people of um, kind of the church of what's happening now, <laughs> right? Um, we are peculiarly, of all centuries, <laughs> we are pe- peculiarly um, uh, deceived or succumb to the notion that our time is the time where God is really doing something. And that just shows us we don't have any idea about history. We don't have any idea. And it's incredibly arrogant. It's full of, it's full of hubris. The, the, by knowing history and by realizing like, oh, wow, like the things we're learning at, you know, or relearning in our age, like, you know, they stumbled on several thousand years ago. And it was, a, it was normal for them to live with that sense. That's, that's humbling. That's a good thing. And we find that the, the historical quality helps us get us out of our time and into the large picture of the community of God throughout all of the ages. Um, isn't it a beautiful thing that when you recite the Apostles' Creed, you join your voice with Bernard of Clairvaux and John Calvin, St. Augustine, from throughout the ages. And yeah, it wasn't written yesterday, and that's a good thing probably. You know, the faith once delivered to the saints, as Jude puts it, is probably a really important recognition Okay, and, and that does not mean, as you can tell in the context of our services, that we don't have what we would call contemporary elements. Don't hear that as a style. The word contemporary means to be with your time. There are contemporary elements. There are elements that are a part, so there's touchstones that are very much in keeping with where we are. We're not going to be ahistorical because God has put us at this time in this place, and that's important to recognize and acknowledge. But let's not be held captive by the time in which we're in. Okay, so be historically uh, rooted. And, and obviously, I've put reform down there. That's our the tradition that we walk in. Um, but fourthly, uh, liturgically ordered. This is the one that normally most people go, what? What is liturgically ordered? What, is that, what does that mean? And do I like that? <laughs> you know, right? Sometimes you may have a reaction to that, <laughs> to that term or that, that word. The word, just for the... Just so you can know, uh, the word just means the work of the people. That's what liturgy means. Um, the work of the people. Now, it was, it was a term that was used not just about worship. It was, it was actually used about all of life, um, especially in the medieval uh, period. And in the context of 3rd and 4th century and developing over the medieval period, it was the work of the people had a rhythm or pattern to it. Just as like the cosmos has a rhythm and pattern to it. There's a, there's a sunrise and there's a noon and there's an evening and there's a sunset and there's a, there's a timedness to it. It has a liturgy. There's seed time and there's harvest. There's summer and there's fall and there's winter and there's spring. There's a liturgy that we live in. There's a pattern and an ordering to all of the cosmos. The, the picture here is there's also a pattern and ordering of the, the human soul, of the life of worship um, that we keep in pace uh, with God in the midst of the liturgy. Um, we are 
we notice in that word, it's the work of the people. So if, you know, what is the modern conception of, of worship? It's, it's, you know, the people up front are doing the worshiping and, uh, and you're, you're watching it. And it's really about whether we like the sermon today or my hymns got sung. And that determines whether I liked today, right? It's a very consumeristic, it's a very 21st century, it's event, is seen mostly as an event. And uh, in, in fact, I was reading something, it's a little aside, but I was reading something very, very sad about the um, worship leader with Hillsong who left the faith. I can't remember his name right off the top. I didn't know him. Um, I'm sorry. Well, Josh Harris is another, yes, that's true as well. Uh, that's true as well, but... Um, he left the faith, and, and um, there's been a lot of ink spilt on, on that to try to make sense of why he did. Um, there was a, an article by a contemporary Christian artist named Skillet. I'm sure how many of you are familiar with Skillet. There were, some, there were some aspects of the article that were really helpful in terms of the evaluation. There were a few aspects that I would go, see, that's really the problem right there. Um, and he was talking about worship leadership, and he was saying, you know, people don't need to trust in their worship leaders. Amen? You know, we're just ordinary people, exactly. We're there to create a worship experience. No, that is not why you're there. No wonder that mantle's so heavy. <laughs> no, you mean I've got to create a worship experience for you? That sounds exhausting. No, no wonder I don't want to do that anymore. That's, I, I, oh, by the way, I can't do that. I can't create a worship experience for you. You see how that's so askew, all right? Liturgy is, is wholly different than that, wholly different than an event-oriented, experience-oriented uh, faith. It, it is to say the person who brings the most power and formation into this room is God, no particular man, no particular skill set, no particular smoke, lights, or piano. I don't care what it is. It doesn't matter what it is. I mean, the same thing whether it's a traditional or contemporary. It doesn't matter. That doesn't matter. That's not the issue. The issue is, what do you understand you to, yourself to be doing? What, what is it that we're doing together? And, and it, is, it is as we're walking through the drama of redemption... As we open up a worship service and God is the one who calls us into worship. And God is the one who leads us to confession by his word. God is the one who meets us in the preaching of his word. God is the one who meets us in the communion. God is the one who opens up our hearts. There's a reliance upon not man, but in the pattern of coming faithfully in the drama of the gospel every week together. And the reliance not upon a, and this is again, I, I'm a little soapboxy. I'm sorry about that. Am I a little soapboxy? Martha will tell me. <laughs> That's why I looked at her. Uh, I don't mean to be. I don't mean to be, but I think these are so easy to seep into our minds and our hearts. I want to be really careful. Um, I want to be, wanna be really, really careful. But um, I, we, don't, we don't want there to be you don't, you don't want worship to begin to turn into 
something that's disconnected from, from life and from community and the patterns and the rhythms of, of normal life. You want there to be a relationship there. At the same time, you want worship to take you out of those things in a different sense and in a sense show you an alternate world, the real one, and then help bring you back into the old one again and hopefully take a little of that world with you. It's actually what you're doing. In one sense of the word, I mean, in the way the ancients would have understood a worship service is it's a foretaste of heaven. And again, you know, we hear those words and we're like, oh, I hope not. You know, in some sense, like I got to sit on hard pews and listen to him drone on forever and ever. And we don't mean it in that way. But we mean to be taken up to see and experience another world, the truest of worlds. And to be reminded of the things that we know and don't know and are getting to know and are learning to then enter back into the world so that heaven and earth actually come together. All right, that's actually what the, the hope is would happen in the midst of a worship service. Um, and the ancients believed that uh, we were entering into the presence of God by the Spirit. And so, you know, if you listen closely, you'd hear the seraphim and the cherubim. Uh, and in, in the sense that um, this is the little outpost of heaven. This is where heaven is breaking in upon us. And um, it may be in flashes and spurts in terms of the way we experience it, but the reality of it is happening. And so when Jesus tells us you know, to pray in such a manner that his kingdom in heaven would come to earth, um, he literally means for us to pray that. He literally means for us to pray that. That's not just a... That's not just a thought project. Because the future is a new heavens and a new earth. And he tells us it's not, again, 21st century here. I'm doing it again. Um, it's not so much about us rapturing up. That's not the focus of the text. The focus of the text is him coming down. He's going to descend as a, as a bridegroom to receive his bride. That's the focus and the trajectory of the text. Um, and when you realize that, you realize, okay, in some sense, we're not going anywhere. He's coming to us. And he's going to remake everything that we know. And heaven is going to be on earth in the fullest sense of the word. All right? Well, I've gone over. Surprise, surprise. Let me pray. Uh, Lord in heaven, thank you for these truths, um, the richness of what it is we're dialoguing and discussing about in here. Uh, Lord, make these things um, memorable to us and formative to us. And uh, would you lift up our eye of faith, maybe even our imaginations in a holy way so that we can see and behold the truth of this gospel and it increasingly change us for your glory. Bring about Acts 2, 42 to 47 here at Cornerstone until the day in which we meet new with you in your kingdom. And a lot more than Cornerstone will be there. And all will be right. And all will be well. Come quickly, Lord Jesus, we pray. Amen. Amen.